We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Welcome to the 900 CHML Love Train, also known as Hamilton Today. You know what? That short week always throws me off. I'm thinking it's Wednesday. No, no, it's Thursday. Welcome to the show, regardless of what day it is. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson on this still warm but about to be cooler day. Glad you're along with us. Thrilled you're along with us. We have learned today that the federal and provincial governments have each chipped in and have reached a binding financing deal with Stellantis down in Windsor, the electric vehicle battery manufacturing place. This is the second one. Remember the, when VW, when Volkswagen got its deal, Stellantis said, well, if we don't get this, we're, maybe we'll leave. Maybe we'll go down to Indiana where we have a plant that's being built. So now we are paying, I think it's $15 billion to help Stellantis as well. Let's bring in Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Marvin, how are you today? I'm just great. Thank you. So I love the idea that we have jobs being created in this country, regardless of what kind of jobs they are. Jobs are good. We all, I think, agree on that. However, let me throw one question at you here to start with, and that is, we are paying $15 billion for 2,500 jobs. That works out to $6 million a job. Is that, that sounds like an awful lot, is it? Well, yes, it is. Although I would say that today the benchmark I use is a million dollars a job if you're looking at capital investment. Scott, if you don't mind, can I just go back and then we can go forward on this? The Stellantis uh, Battery Factory, which is a joint venture between it and another company you may have heard of called LG, uh, was announced last year. It was announced in 2022. And at that time, the federal and the provincial government had contributed to the capital cost of the construction of the plant. Ontario contributed $300 million. The federal government contributed $500 million. And frankly, those are the kind of numbers that we're used to hearing on these sorts of things. You'll recall that here in Hamilton, both governments have contributed towards DeFasco, phasing out coal in favor of electricity in its smelting operations. And that was the end of that. And then we had the Volkswagen deal, and now we had a new wrinkle. Both levels of government were contributing capital dollars to construction, but they were also subsidizing operations for the first 10 years of the plant's operation. And why are they doing that? Well, uh, Mr. Biden in the United States had a bill passed called uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. And in that Inflation Reduction Act was a number of subsidies to encourage electronic vehicle or electric vehicle production and batteries in the United States. So to get Volkswagen to come and build it, they had to not just contribute to the capital cost of instruction, but offer similar levels of subsidies. We came to that conclusion, and Scott, you'll remember that deal was $13 billion over 10 years of these subsidies. They aren't really directly connected to job creation, but it is connected to having this technology here in the country. Stellantis heard about this and said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, we came in good faith. If you're giving Volkswagen this, why aren't we getting our share of the pie? And so they actually stopped construction on their factory in Windsor and said, let's sort this out. It took two months. And we've learned this week that they have sorted it out. Uh, again, now it's a $15 billion over 10-year subsidy, above roughly $1.5 billion a year. But one new wrinkle is that Ontario is on the hook for a bigger chunk of it. In the Volkswagen deal, that was almost all federal subsidy money. But this time around, $5 billion is from Ontario, $10 billion from the federal government since it is the Ontario economy that benefits the most. 
last point on this is, is it a good deal? Well, if we want to see this kind of technology produced in Ontario, unfortunately, we are competing on a global stage. And when other global countries offer these kinds of incentives, our choice really is to play or pass. And we wanted to play. And so this is the cost to play. Can we, and look, I don't know if this should be the barometer of whether it's successful or good or not, but can we possibly make this amount of money back? Can we, whether, whether you include just taxes that these workers will pay over the lifetime of their contract or spinoffs or anything else, if it's $6 million a job, can any kind of government or the economy in general make that back? Yes. The short answer to that question is yes. So the thinking is that having both factories, both the Stellantis factory and the Volkswagen factory, creates a, a, a critical mass of activity. And there will be other companies that are going to have to be built and establish themselves to feed into those two countries, uh, companies, excuse me, the inputs that they need to make those electric batteries. So if you take the broader perspective about all the employment and all the businesses and all the taxes, yes, we can get that money back. But even more importantly, is that we are a player in the electric vehicle market as opposed to sitting on the sidelines and seeing these batteries and vehicles produced in other parts of the world. You'll recall again, during the COVID epidemic, we learned that a lot of vaccines were not made in Canada. A lot of protective equipment wasn't made in Canada. And a lot of people said, well, why not? Why don't we have a share of that industry? Well, in this case, that, that's the cost if we wanna be a player in this industry. The other, I guess it's, um, I guess it's a concern. I don't know. We already have seen it once happen because Stellantis is the example. The more times you have governments that start to do this kind of thing, are we expecting then that more companies, not even necessarily electric vehicle companies, are we going to expect more companies now to be lining up saying, well, you help them. And I know we don't make electric batteries, but hey, we do this. We make canola oil. We make this or that. Should we right. expect more companies asking for handouts? The short answer to your question is yes. You should expect to see more companies saying, what are you going to give me? And then what this does is it creates a situation that the government has to bet on, quote unquote, winners and losers. So let's say you're a farmer and you say, well, I'd like to decarbonize my production on my farm. What kind of grant do you have me? And the government says, oh, I'm sorry, we don't have any grants for you. You're not as important as the electrical vehicle market. Uh, and so various companies are going to go cap in hand to the government and saying, well, what can you do to help me? Some will be helped. Some will be helped at the same level as Stellantis. Others won't be helped. And, and this, this unfortunately creates winners and losers. There is a school of thought that says the government should not get involved in any of this. But the consequence of doing that is that there would be industry segments that aren't represented here at all. So it's one of those damned if you do, damned if you don't scenarios. If we want to be a player in the modern economy, we have to help some of these sectors. But unfortunately, it means that other sectors will be left out. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Thanks as always. Glad to be with you, Scott. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny opened in theaters. And if we thought that a return to Indiana Jones was going to blow away the other movies and dominate, I got to tell you, I'm looking at the box office numbers for this year. And there seems to be a pattern here and it's not necessarily what well, it is kind of what I would have expected. It's not what I would have wanted necessarily, although my, my taste isn't necessarily everyone else's taste, but the five top moneymakers this year, 
Super Mario Brothers movie, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, The Little Mermaid, Avatar of the Way of Water. I want to bring in Bill Briou. He writes about TV and entertainment and other things along those lines. Bill, how are you today? I'm well, Scott. How are you doing? I am well. I'm looking at this list of what are the top movies in the world, in North America, I guess, North American numbers for this year so far. And I, I don't know what the proper definition is, but I don't see a classic or, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, like they're movies that obviously they have an audience and I'm not questioning that for a second, but boy, it looks like we have sort of found or, or Hollywood has found what works and there's not a lot of branching out from what is predictably going to make them lots of money. There's nothing on here that I would look at and go, wow, that was a surprise or that's something unique or new. Yeah, you're right. When you see Super Mario Brothers as the number one movie, uh, you know, it, it kind of, you could just sit home and play the Super Mario. You don't have <laughs> yeah. to go to a movie for that experience. So I don't get it. Uh, it's something, it's the kids, Scott, I think. It's not, uh, you know, it's just the movies are people that are going to see to to cinemas, to, to theaters now are 30, you know, or under. And, and I just think um, that's why we don't recognize it. When we see Indiana Jones, we think, wow, that's got to be the number one attraction, but not really. But isn't, so, okay, here's what I don't get about this. And look, I, you're, you're absolutely right. I understand that it's always been the teenage market or the 20-something market that has driven movies and everything else. And I'm I'm out of that market now. You're out of that market now. I get that. But all the people who, we, you know, we hear about this aging population in Canada and the States and they have the, they're the ones with disposable income. Wouldn't it make some sense for Hollywood to say let's find a movie or two that is going to tap into that market who have the time and the money and might go and spend it? Yeah, and, and you're seeing them trying, right? I mean, they did the movie with Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin, uh, Brady, 80 for Brady, or what were, you know, whatever that was called. Uh, you know, you, you are seeing some films that are aiming. And the Indiana Jones film, really, that's for boomers. That's yep. for people who loved watching that film in 1984, whenever it was first released. So. Um, yeah, and yeah, but but I do think a lot of uh, older Canadians are more reluctant to go and sit in the theater now. That COVID has changed it for all of us, right? We got this pandemic happened. We spent a few years not going. We all built better, uh, got bigger TV screens, and, and maybe got more uh, streaming services, and got kind of content that we could just uh, Netflix and chill uh, mm. and have popcorn at home. And I just think that's change that experience for older viewers, whereas younger people, they still want to go out and have, you know, a date or do something fun with their friends. Well, there's one other thing here too, and, I, and I'm not so naive not to think this. I mean, we're talking about costs and I think Indiana Jones, they said this latest movie costs something like 300 million to make. And then yeah. you've got marketing and everything on top of that. So you, you better have an audience. I had to look this up because I saw this the other day. I couldn't believe it. Do you know how much it costs to make Back to the Future in 1985? Or 84, I guess they made it, but it came out in 85. Do you know what that the, the production cost was for Back to the Future? I'm going to guess it was $35 million. Le- almost half that, $19 million. Wow. And I'm looking going, what would Back to the Future cost today to make? And yeah, so no. if, if it's going to, if, I, if a, a, an average movie, and that wasn't an average movie, but if, an, if a, your average movie is going to cost you $100 million to make, I guess there's no room anymore to take a risk on something. No, and the same with TV. That's why everything we see is another Law and Order or another CSI clone or another uh, 
spinoff of The Bachelor. You know, that it's only <laughs> what's what's familiar is what's being sold over and over and over again. And it's the same with the movies. It's a Marvel superhero. It's all capes and cowls and tights. And uh, yeah, you don't see independent things anymore, except, um, you know, on, on uh, some of the streaming services where things can be a little more niche because they don't need to make back a billion dollars, you know, and that's money has changed for sure. I am very excited though, despite what you just said, I am very excited about this fall's new release, the CSI Stony Creek, um, when it comes (laughs) out that, uh, you know, that'll be awesome. That'll, uh, you know, and it's all money and and that, that takes me to another story that, uh, besides movies that's out there. And this has been a couple of weeks now that we've had to think about this, but, um, Bell Canada has asked that the federal government release its stations from having to carry local news or to whittle down how much they have to carry. And I'm guessing, Bill, that that is entirely a money thing again. It's got nothing to do with not wanting to do news. It's just news is expensive. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, the announcement, uh, CTV basically shut down all their bureaus around the world. You know, it was like, you know, the old gold standard years and years ago, Walter Cronkite was the voice of God, but CBS had correspondents around the world that they could talk to. Well, it's just too expensive. Yeah, they're not putting the money in. And and this was back when 30 million viewers would watch the three U.S. newscasts every night. Now, three million might be watching one of those newscasts. So they just, the, the advertising revenue is all gone in other ways. And also people don't get their news that way anymore. You don't wait till 11 or 6.30 to find out what's going on in the world. You look at your phone any time of the day or night. You you just can call it up. And um, so doing things the other way has to be rethought. And um, media companies like Bell, who own radio stations and TV stations and phone companies, are trying to consolidate to make it profitable. Because people now do news differently and get their news in different ways. Should the CRTC still require the networks to carry news or should they say, yeah, you know what? Times have changed and you're off the hook. We're in an area here, Scott, that's huge and changing. And it's to me, television's become and has been for a while, a borderless business. So the dilemma for a a government of a country in saying, we're going to step in now and regulate. We're going to say, listen, Google and, uh, you know, Facebook and Meta, uh, you got to do what we say. We're not going to stand for this anymore. And these big companies that are worldwide are just going to go, fine, bye. And, and you know, we don't care if you don't even advertise on us anymore. And I, and I think the government and trying to intervene in the old days where they could sort of say, oh, yeah, well, we're going to fine you or we're going to do this or that. It's different. It doesn't work when the uh, information is uh, international and the audience is international. It's beyond borders and just can't regulate it that way anymore. I don't think. Uh, we got to let you go. But just before I do, you know, it's interesting that we're talking about the Indiana Jones and the movies that once upon a time, uh, when you look at gross receipts now, like Indiana Jones to this point has made $84 million, which sounds pretty good once upon a time. Until you realize, I went last Friday, and I think for my wife and I in IMAX, it was 50 bucks for two tickets. Once upon a time, you would go for $2 Tuesday. Slightly different gross receipts. Was this like a VIP thing? No, no, no. It was just, I was just with, you know, with the people. Wow. Bill, I was with the no, people. It, it, yeah. 
it, that that's part of it, right? And that's part of why the older audiences aren't going because I remember spending fifty cents to see a film, <laughs> a, tr- what, a triple know. header with five cents for a popcorn and a pop. Yeah, I know, but the world the world has changed. You got CSI uh, Stony Creek, CSI Exeter coming up. That yeah. would be a good one too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The slaughter of the lambs. The yep. Worlds. Yeah. There we go. Bill Briu, uh, find him at briu.tv. I always appreciate it, Bill. Thanks for doing this. This is a strange story for sure. This is a, this is a weird one. A Saskatchewan farmer, story goes, a Saskatchewan farmer received a contract sent to him, I guess by text message or by email. And he responded by text message one way or the other. And the way he responded was with a thumbs up emoji. We've all used it. Well, a court has determined that the thumbs up emoji was, I guess, the equivalent of a signature that bound him to this contract. He says, all I was saying was I got the message with the contract, but he's been deemed apparently to have accepted this contract because of the emoji. Are we now, should we now be cautious of what emojis or what other things we would use, short forms, anything else, because now that could be used as legal and binding. Jeremy Herman is an Ontario employment lawyer and an associate with Sanfiru Tumarkin. Joins us now. Jeremy, thanks for doing this today. Hi, Scott. It's a pleasure to be with you. This is a weird one because I think you can probably, I think most people listening could probably see the answer saying, hey, thumbs up means good to go. And the other one saying thumbs up means, hey, I got it. Thanks for it. And it's, it's kind of interesting that a court has apparently considered that this means I'm signing off on this. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's a peculiar situation. I think possibly the judge is uh, trying to make headway in the legal system, possibly. And, and, and there was a quote about the tide of technology changing and that courts have to be prepared to meet the new challenges that, that could arise from the use of uh, emojis and the like, but definitely a peculiar one. And uh, I mean, I think it makes sense that the guy meant that he was simply confirming receipt by sending uh, an emoji with a thumbs up. But I guess you never know. And then the law is what it is. Uh, and and uh, I think it's important to note, though, that this did occur in Saskatchewan, right? And so the laws in each province are different, and it could be that in Ontario or other provinces, this approach will be adopted if such a situation arises in the future. Um, but it also may not be adopted, right? It could be that in Ontario or, like I said, another province, a judge decides to go differently and then take another approach and say, no, in, in this kind of case, in a a thumbs up emoji is just confirming receipt. It's not confirming a contract or a deal. I mean, look, look uh, but the, I guess that that remains to be seen. Jeremy, the the chance that anybody listening right now is going to find themselves in this exact circumstance, I would say, is probably impossibly small. It'll it's not going to happen. However, however, we all use emojis. And it does make me wonder what other things could lead us into legal issues. Could you be, I don't know, if an emoji can be seen as a signature, can emoji be seen as an insult to say you're libeling someone if you send the, you know, the dog poop emoji? I mean, who knows what? Like there are, there's a million interpretations of what an emoji could mean. Could you get into legal issues by an emoji use then? 
I guess you can. I guess this is a, a precedent case that says that you can get into issues. It could be accepting a contract. And, you know, in your example, it could be that someone's liable for for defamation or speaking negatively or disparaging remarks or whatever the case might be. Um, and I guess it's just uh, it's a trend of that we're seeing today. Emojis could be used to interpret what you're trying to say. I mean, of course, the problem is that uh, it's, they're vague and there is yes. room for interpretation. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, half of the emojis that I find on my phone, now I don't use a ton of them, but half of them, I'm not even sure what I'm supposed to use them for. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> if they pop yeah. up on my phone, I may mean something entirely different from what someone else is going to take it to mean. Exactly. And that's why, I mean, I think I'm not a judge. I'm a lawyer. But if I were a judge, I would, I would maybe... I would judge this one differently and try to make it clear that, no, a contract is binding if there are clear words stating, I agree, or I accept, or something to that effect. Um, but this is setting a, a new precedent. And, they, and certainly there could be implications in, in various uh, areas of law. I'm an employment lawyer, so we, we could see this uh, impacting employment law significantly because Employees are signing contracts all the time, or they're being asked to to sign a contract. And so, if an, a prospective employee is in receipt of a contract from their from their new employer, and they're asked to sign it, and they send back a thumbs up emoji, it could be construed as acceptance of the contract and all the terms, and and that could get employees into trouble for sure. What if it wasn't an emoji? What if you? What if something happened in the office and your boss said to you, hey, are you good with something? And you just sort of nod at them or you wave your whatever, give them a thumbs up saying, yeah, I'll, I'll get to it. But they say thumbs up means good. I mean, th this does yeah. really create a whole lot of questions about how careful we have to be with all kinds of things. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, as a general rule, it should be this case, should send the message that you don't have to, and you don't have to say words to, to mean something, right? It could be an emoji. As you said, it could be a thumbs up in real life. It could be a nod. It could be shaking your head. It could be rolling your eyes, right? And all of these things could be interpreted Boy, in ways that, that's... uh, could be, could that, be bad. That gets into some weird stuff. My dad was a lawyer and, you know, he would always say, you know, your, your, your word is your bond, but also your signature is your bond. Well, now apparently your emoji is your bond and, uh, we are in a, we're in a new world in 2023. So, you know, we'll, we'll see where it goes. Jeremy Herman, uh, lawyer with Tim, uh, Sam Ferry with Tumark. And thank you, Jeremy. Appreciate this today. My pleasure. Thank you, Scott. What a, uh, what a bizarre story though. D it is though something to keep in mind if you're going to send emojis probably don't do them on important documents. It sounds ridiculous, but here you go. Perfect example. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. If you don't like the heat, it's been a rough few days. And in all likelihood, before this summer is out, we will have another one or two of these. That's... Pretty consistent. That's pretty typical. Please tell me you're joking, Scott. It's not. We're we're the apart, my apartment has zero ventilation. <laughs> if, as I say, if you don't like heat or if you don't have ventilation, it's been a rough go. Well, what about for those who uh, may not even have an apartment or may need some help? YWCA is one of those places, one of those charities, one of those places that's called upon 
in times like this. Um, Amy Deschamps is the Director of Housing and Gender-Based Violence Support Service. Joins us now. Amy, thanks for doing this today. Not a problem. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm thrilled to have you along because this is, uh, you know, we probably think more often of shelters like yours and other ones and, and places that help people when it's really miserably cold. We always have the cold weather alert. And we, you know, people have to get in out of the cold. I don't think we think of it all that often when it's blisteringly hot. Absolutely. And I think um, as a part of the extreme heat working group, this is something that we've been proactively planning for, for for a little while, recognizing the risks that are faced by the unsheltered uh, community members in our city and knowing that we do serve these folks um, within our Carolines Place program as well as our safer use space. So um, while we have uh, capacity to support 22 folks overnight and uh, often see up to 45 individuals a day, we also know that we're turning away a number of individuals and that the, the heat and the weather that we're under right now with an advisory uh, presents risks to folks who have, you know, who are unsheltered and cannot uh, take shelter, uh, perhaps access the local cooling spaces as easily as others. So really wanting to plan for those individuals and their safety. Let me ask you what probably is a silly question, but I'll ask it anyway. Is it as problematic when it's super hot as it is when it's super cold for people? Absolutely. And I think that uh, particularly for folks who are unsheltered, uh, not having necessarily as accessible act, like access to drinking water, those that might be suffering and struggling with um, different types of mental health illnesses, those who may be using various substances, the effects of heat can actually lead to extreme heat illness in ways that not everyone is as familiar with being able to identify. It can have an impact on behavior. It can create uh, disorientation, irrationality. Um, and so sometimes we often then will also mistake some of the behaviors that we're seeing in our local uh, unsheltered community members in that way, not recognizing that what it is is actually someone who's been um, who is suffering from overheating and, and really imminently needs to be seen by EMS or hospital. So we're really looking at trying to prevent that. You, uh, in addition to providing uh, a place for people to, to go, you also provide stuff for people who need the kind of things. And, and I think you're always, if I understand it, you're always open to donations of these things. What are the things that you could really use from people? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, we know that the, the need certainly in our community outpaces uh, the capacity that we have. So any support for uh, individuals at these times of extreme weather, whether it be in the cold or in the heat, is always needed. Particularly right now, we're looking at, um, you know, cases of water, lip balm, um, sunscreen, um, different types of hats, um, hats, the ability to be able to hand folks these items as needed, uh, whether they're Accessing our program or we see them outside can go a long way to help and assist people. We also have a post um, on our social media pages that kind of helps to identify some of the needs that we see arise during these times, both for folks we serve and the unsheltered community uh, members that we support. Do you have corporations that give this stuff or government grants that pay for it, or are you reliant on individual donations for these kind of things? Yeah, so we certainly receive um, funding for Carolyn's Place through the, the city of Hamilton. Um, but as I said, when we have a capacity of, of 22 and we're seeing numbers of averaging 45 people a day um, with turning away individuals, our, our budget obviously doesn't stretch to meet the needs that we're trying to support. And we never want to send someone away 
without even being able to hand them the thing that they need. And so obviously um, being able to rely on and have folks, you know, from the community donate uh, is a huge help to make that stretch for our safer use space, which is a, a space that provides support to individuals um, who are experiencing substance use challenges. We have no dedicated funding for that, and we see about an average of 15 to 20 people per day um, to pr provide safe use space. So that would be an, another uh, avenue that we would want to be able to bring in needs for um, of this regard. So in terms of corporate donations, that's not something that we have uh, a widespread sort of incoming um, when it, we talk about the very specific items that we're needing at this time. Um, but something that we're always open to and, and would encourage folks to check out the post on our website. On your Instagram right now, uh, urgently needed donations, shampoo, conditioner, toothpaste, body wash, body lotion, sunscreen, lip balm, underwear, socks, tampons, and it says donations can be dropped off at 75 McNabb Street South. Anything there not right, or was that pretty good? Nope, that looks great. And those okay. donations are going towards Carol Ann's place and our safe reuse space as service users. 75 McNabb Street South, if you want to help out. And if you're able to do that, that would be uh, terrific. That uh, That's Amy Deschamps, who is the Director of Housing and Gender-Based Violence uh, at YWCA. Thanks, Amy. Appreciate this. Thank you. Take good care. Quick break. Back after this. Stay with us. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. There is a new poll out that says fewer of you, fewer of us, are planning on spending a lot of money on summer travel. Now, uh, we're going to get to uh, Nick Nanos, who ran this poll in just a second, to find out. I don't know if this means just, you know, traveling to Rome or renting a cottage and going up to Northern Ontario. I don't know how far it means when it means summer travel, but nonetheless, 38% of Canadians say they are more likely to spend less on their summer travel plans. It's an increase from 31% as recently as 2015. 57% uh, of Canadians say they have no interest in traveling internationally this year. Let me bring in Nick Nanos. He is the guy who is behind the aforementioned, the, the aptly named Nanos Research. Joins us now. Uh, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate the time. Great to join you and all your listeners. So just to clarify with the, the question that I started with, when we say travel, that can mean a whole lot of different things. Is this only internationally or does this even mean up to the northern parts of the province to go to a cottage or what does this mean exactly? Well, on the, uh, on the travel question, we talked about international travel plans and about 57% of Canadians said that they have no interest in, uh, in traveling internationally right now, while I think about uh, 3% and then another uh, 18 per, uh, about 18% or one out of every five said that they uh, do have travel plans. So, you know, the, the thing is, is what's clear, at least in the survey, is that uh, a majority of Canadians are not looking at any kind of international travel this summer when it comes to their vacation. And do you look at that from this as an economic statement that people are concerned with their dollars and cents, or do you look at this as a geopolitical thing that there are a lot of places in the world right now that a lot of people say, I'm not really sure I want to go there? Well, it's mostly, uh, mostly economic because we, when we asked about the factors when they plan a holiday, like at the very, very top of the list and way, way ahead of everything else was cost at around 51%, followed by the weather and then the distance and time that people get off. So, you know, the, the reality is, is that, you know, Canadians uh, are thinking about the cost of a vacation. You know, I think of it, think of it this way. It's kind of like a big vice grip on the wallet, right? They're going to go on vacation. Uh -huh. 
but they're they're thinking about the cost. And the kicker in all of this is, you know, we ask whether they're going to spend more or the same or less than uh, than they usually do on their summer vacation. And uh, people are three times more likely to say that they're going to spend less this summer compared to uh, more, which uh, speaks to the pressure that Canadians are under just paying the bills. You know, you just you raised about seven different questions with that uh, with that great answer. But uh, okay, so uh, let's go through these one at a time. Then, um, do yep. people normally do a lot of traveling in the summer? And that may sound like a ridiculous question, but I think of Canadians often as the people who want to get away in the winter to go somewhere warm. Do we? Is it is it unusual that summer travel would be down? Uh, well, the thing is, is summer travel is down compared to compared to the previous waves of research. And that's basically the best way to look at this. We didn't ask people whether they travel more in the summer compared to other times of the year, but we do know from other research that we've done is that families tend to travel more in the summer than in other times of the year because Off the kids school. are in school. Right. Right. Compared to the snowbirds, the infamous, famous Canadian <laughs> snowbirds that uh, try to get away from it all during those uh, chilly months. But I think what's what's clear here, at least when it comes to the summer vacation, that you know, uh, there's not a lot of domestic, tra- not a lot of international travel going on, and people are are budgeting to spend less than what they usually do on their summer vacation. And now I'm going to ask you. I know you're not a travel agent, uh, so so this may be unfair. <laughs> I haven't in the last month or so been on to look at the price of flights and hotels and things. Do we know if it's been vastly up? Is it much more costly right now, or is it just that? they're worried about their money, so it doesn't really matter what the cost would be. I think it's more people are worried about the, their money because we do know that uh, Canadians are struggling to pay for the rent or for the mortgage, that they see the cost of groceries going up, and they still want to go on vacation. But, you know, it's just another, what I'll say, cost point for them to uh, manage. And, you know, there's still some economic uncertainty as to, you know, how the rest of the year will pan out. You know, where will you know, interest rates be. And I think as a result, Canadians are just being a little more prudent and, uh, and, and focused on, uh, you know, still going on summer vacation, uh, but just trying to, to squeeze as, as much value as they can for a limited budget. You, you touch on something else there. We have been hearing now for, Nick, I don't know how many months now have we been hearing experts tell us there's a recession coming, there's a recession coming, there's a recession coming, and we haven't really had it yet. Do you have other research or even tied into this one? Do people really believe that a recession is coming? Or is that an area of concern for people in this country? Yeah, well, we track consumer confidence every week for Bloomberg News in Canada. And, you know, what that research suggests is not that a recession is coming, but that things are going to be flat uh, when it comes to the economy. Um, and, you know, that's really the, the direction that we're in right in. The other thing that really pops is the fact that if if you are uh, if you are under 35 years of age, if you're a young person, you're more most more likely to report that you're going to be spending less. And you know there are a lot of young people who are in their first and second jobs that are are exceptionally being squeezed by the the rising cost of groceries and just being able to pay the rent. And it looks like they're disproportionately uh, worried and trying to manage the cost of a vacation compared to those that are over 55 years of age. Yeah, and, and it makes some sense. I mean, the people who we always, you know, you talked about the snowbirds. I mean, the people who have the time and probably the finances to be able to do it are older. Uh, but certainly, as you say, compared to other years, it is clearly younger people are more squeezed now than they were. I mean, I suppose it's always been an older person's thing more to travel, but 
you know, comparatively, it's, it's still difficult for younger people now. Absolutely. And, you know, think of it this way. Even if you're a young person owning your first home, you know, you know, interest rates, even though interest rates are not super high, they are higher than they have been in the past. And young people now who are first time homeowners have to pay more in interest charges, you know, compared to three or four years ago, you know, compared to, you know, those retired folks are probably either have paid off their mortgage or at the tail end of the mortgage. So increased interest rates doesn't really mean too much to them. Last thing before I let you go, um, one of the things that we hear from, you know, in some corners now is that, oh, you know, you got to be careful about traveling because of climate change. You know, all those air flights are putting pollution into the air and on and on and on. It doesn't appear in your research that that is really something that a lot of people are giving a lot of consideration to. That If they want to travel, they're going to travel. That's not really high in their mind. No, not at all. I think 1.4%, that's not a lot of people. Uh, said that carbon emissions from travel was the most important uh, factor uh, for them and uh, when it came to uh, making decisions. So people are focused on, uh, you know, meat and potatoes, paying the bills, that kind of stuff. And uh, they're, if they're uh, scaling back or controlling, co- controlling things, it's because of costs, not because of the environment at this point in time. They're still worried about the environment, but, you know, the money talks. Nick Nanos, the Chief Data Scientist and founder of Nanos Research. Always love having you on here. Thanks for taking time today. Take it easy. Bye-bye. There is now an investigation going on into what has happened. It's, it's a strange, strange story. You've heard about it probably if you've been listening to the news or read the spec or watch CHCH. There was a press release, an email that was sent out from what appeared to be a Hamilton police email to local media outlets about a cryptocurrency scam story. This got picked up. The email, it's, uh, I haven't seen it, but from everything I've read, the email looked like it was very legitimate. You know, all those things you take at work about how to make sure that a story and email is from a legitimate source, it all looked good. And then all of a sudden it turns out the police find out that this is, or call the media places to say, hey, this is not us. Uh, there is... There are lessons and warnings and a lot of things in here, I would think, for all of us. Carmi Levy is a great friend of ours, a technology analyst and journalist, joins us now. Carmi, how are you today? I am great, Scott. Great to be here. Great to have you on. And by the way, I think I saw online that yesterday or the day before was your 30th, 31st, 32nd anniversary. Way to go, man. Thank you. Yeah, my wife has the patience of a saint, and clearly she puts up with me. So she, she, is, uh, she is sending you spoof emails to say, still going. Uh, this, this is a bizarre story. This is really a bizarre story because, you know, we've all at our workplaces now, they give us these things we have to do every few weeks or a few months about testing to make sure we don't have viruses or get scammed. And it seems like everybody did exactly the kinds of things that you're supposed to do. They didn't just take an email at face value. They looked, they checked and yet they still got scammed and even the police got scammed essentially on this one this this to me says if you really try hard enough almost anybody can make almost anything happen online yeah uh, because anyone can i mean yeah, on the internet we used to joke on the internet no one knows you're a dog but the reality is you can make yourself look like anything you want even um the, the police service it's, it's not that hard i can go online right now and i can just find and a press release from this police service, from any police service, any organization, uh, and then I can replicate it. It's not that hard. Uh, and I can pretend to be them and I can use similar platforms to distribute it. 
and then spoof or fool a legitimate news organization. Maybe they're rushed. We know how you know things get in the newsroom. Uh, and, you know, it, it's like, oh, it's a press release from the cops, of course. And, of course, they'll run with it. They won't double check. They'll just throw it up on their website. And, of course, we always say, always check your sources. Always, uh, you know, look to the original. Was it posted on a legitimate news site? Well, if it's on the legitimate news site, guess what? Now it's real. So, these But are they even news. spoke, Carmen, let me jump in for one second, because yeah. your point is absolutely bang on. But they even spoke to the police and the spoof had caught the police off guard because one police officer, I guess, didn't realize and just saw the press release and thought must be from us, I guess. So th- this is one of these things where everybody got fooled. So then you call the source and you talk to them in person and essentially they validate it and they were confused by it. Th- this one seems like the perfect storm. It does uh, because, I mean, obviously, clearly within the police service, one side wasn't speaking to the other. And I don't say that to assign fault. Uh, this was a very sophisticated artifact that fooled pretty much everyone who was involved to the point that, you know, if, if you think about it, if you're a public affairs officer in a police uh, uh, service and this thing crosses your desk, one of your colleagues wrote it, you're not going to reach out to them every single time. Did you write this? You know, did it come from your desk? It looks like it did. It looks like the hundreds of others they've released over the last number of years. So why would you question it? It has that institutional legitimacy. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think it's a it's a siren call for all of us that as the level of sophistication of uh, criminals continues to go up, uh, their ability to spoof and and fool us us into believing that they are in fact who they say they are is so good that even the institutions themselves can get taken, and even the traditional forms of validation and verification can be bypassed if these attacks are 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 planned and executed as effectively as this one clearly was. This, you're right, I, 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 like, I, I look at this one as kind of like a perfect storm. And I don't want to give credit to criminals ever, uh, but when you look at all of the gates that this passed through, um, it was clear that at no point did anyone stop and go, oh, this doesn't really pass the smell. Well, but it's every, everything seemed right. It seemed plausible, the story. It went through the police. You and I, I believe you and I have talked previously about the future with our uh, deep fakes and things like that. This mm-hmm. is, this is essentially a, an email deep fake almost, if you want to call it that. And we're getting to the point, whether it's video deep fakes, audio deep fakes, this now, the problem with this, I don't think Carmi is that there was one story that people look at and go, oh, they, you know, somebody got spoofed. I don't think that people are looking at it and going, ha ha, they got, I think it just adds to this complete lack now of knowing who and what can we actually believe when we see it? Exactly. Uh, is that if you can't trust, uh, you know, your, your local police station or force, um, if every, all the traditional forms of ensuring that you are speaking to someone in proper authority, uh, if those checks and balances no longer work because we're doubting everything, that's a pretty you know damning sign of the times and a pretty damning sort of comment on where we've arrived as a society. It, it means that we all have to look inward and ask ourselves, are those validation and verification tools that we've all grown up with, uh, all those best practices that have been drilled into us since day one, well, they're no longer good enough. So what should we be doing? We should be having a national conversation about how we raise our own bar. And I don't even have the answers to that no. at this point because... Uh, but but we need to be discussing that. I would expect that 
within news organizations, within police forces, within all public-facing organizations, any company with a public profile, they should be looking and asking themselves, how can this happen to me? And what are the things that we should be doing to maybe start tightening our defenses somewhat, tightening our people, educating them so that they become even better consumers than they are now? There's no one simple answer, and, and there's, no, there's not going to be one magic bullet fixed to any of this. Uh, but that conversation has to start at some point because the landscape is changing and not for the better. Uh, yeah, and we got to run. But, you know, the, the other thing I thought about this was, um, you know, a lot of people get very impatient when police don't give answers on certain things. Mm-hmm. I expect that now probably we're going to be waiting longer for answers from police because they are, they're not going to want to get caught in this one again. Sure. And uh Wait, look, we got we we got to run. I wish we could keep yeah. going. Uh, Carmi Levy, I'll, I'll, I'll feel I'll feel better if it takes more time. As long as the truth comes in, there I'm, you I'm go. Carmi Levy, uh, technology analyst, journalist, one of our favorite guests here. Thanks, Carmi. Appreciate it, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's News. Today's talk nine hundred CHML. We have a showdown in Ottawa, an ongoing showdown, I guess, is a better way. To describe it, it's about whether or not to have a foreign interference inquiry about China. We know all about the stuff that's going on here. But now we're at a point when the prime minister says, well, the conservatives are blocking this because they were not able to reach consensus. And the conservatives are saying, no, we're not blocking anything. We want to have this thing. Someone is misinterpreting, which is a generous way of describing this or whatever. Uh, Duff Conacher is the co-founder of Democracy Watch, joins us now. Duff, how are you today? Well, how are you? Well, I am, um, uh, like every Canadian probably should be, a little frustrated that politicians seem to be playing more games than actually solving problems. That's what this seems to me to be, is just a bunch of game playing and na-na-na-na-na-na, you you know, you're not doing what I want, blah, blah. The whole thing just seems ludicrous. Yeah, unfortunately not surprising uh, it happens a lot on a lot of issues and frustrates a lot of Canadians. Uh, and I think the spin game will continue. Although I think in the end, the liberals will be cornered into uh, doing a inquiry um, with terms of reference that uh, include looking into who knew what, when, uh, and what they decided to do and what they did about foreign interference in the last few years. Uh, and that's when the Liberals have been in power. And uh, also that uh, they won't get to choose their own judge. And as they ch- Trudeau tried to do by choosing David Johnston, his friend, to judge his actions in the first round on this issue. That is the real, obviously seems to be the real hang up right now. And he- here's the word, the word consensus is what really gets my attention to this one. Because I, I don't believe, I mean, politics is supposed to be about compromise but consensus is not the same as unanimity. There seems to, I'm reading this as saying, if you won't, if everybody in politics won't agree to the same person, well, we can't do this then. I'm not sure that's what we're supposed to be looking for, is it? No, and that's why I think the liberals will in the end uh, be uh, forced to, to do something that they clearly don't want to do. Because the uh, opposition parties will agree on a short list of of uh, one to three people, and I don't think amongst those three people there they will be playing games 
totally like the NDP won't say only we only want this person who's been an NDP loyalist for decades mm. because that would be so hypocritical. They would be uh, they've criticized Trudeau for appointing David Johnston, an old friend of uh, Trudeau and the Trudeau family, who then chose a lawyer who had only donated to the liberals in the last uh, 17 years. And and so, you know, they, they criticized David Johnston and his choice of his uh, lawyer uh, very strongly and Trudeau for choosing Johnston. So for them to then put forward candidates that are partisan in favor of their party would just, I mean, they would lose any, any uh, credit that they've gained from voters by pushing for someone who's fully independent. So I think the three people that the opposition parties will agree on, or if it's maybe two or, or they may say we want all three to be a part of a, a inquiry commission, not instead of having one commissioner, that the liberals will then look really bad if they say, no, we don't agree to these people because um, they're not going to be partisan. Mm. And uh, as a result, um, they're going to be viewed as balanced and impartial. And the liberals will be looking like they're trying to cover things up as they have looked like uh, they're trying to cover things up so far. So why have the other parties then not done this already? Because I think your I think your strategy is brilliant. I think you simply go to the public and say, here's the three names that we've given. We've got 40 million Canadians. The person who we choose doesn't have to be a liberal loyalist. It doesn't have to be a conservative loyalist. doesn't have to be an NDP loyalist. There's lots to choose from. Here's the three. And we have basically thrown it out to the liberals and says, pick whichever one you want, your choice, that seems to me that that would have put all the pressure right squarely in the liberals' lap. Yeah, it makes sense. And I guess, you know, the parties are compromising. So I guess they decided to work on the terms of reference first. And the terms of reference do relate to who you choose, because you do want people with some expertise in the issue. You don't want people with hard and fast positions on the issue, but you want them to have some sense of national security issues. So it is kind of obvious uh, what the terms of reference are going to be, but they're still being negotiated. And I think that's where the parties from all the reports sounds like they're focused on that right now. And then uh, they'll shift. And the conservatives have said, we want the terms of reference set out first before we start negotiating with the other parties as to who we think would be uh, good and qualified and independent enough to look into those questions. So I think they'll get to it quite quickly. Um, and if the liberals stall on terms of reference, then I think the next step for the opposition parties, which if they're smart, they'll all do together is to say, well, we've agreed on terms of reference and we're going to make them public. And here's the, and we've agreed on three people. We're not going to make them public because uh, maybe only one of them will be chosen and we shouldn't, uh, have the other two, you know, the, the first one that might be chosen might not accept it. So we'll just, but, you know, let everyone know we've agreed on terms of reference and three people and we've sent it to the liberals and uh, then the liberals will really be cornered. Let me ask you, uh, th this may be an obvious question, but I don't know. I mean, when you mentioned that you need to have someone with some expertise, and I think that's a valid point for sure. Uh, I mean, I, you don't want me doing it. I, I don't know enough about it. You don't want most of the listeners. I mean, honestly, you don't. You want someone who has expertise in this area. I get that. Can you find that person in Canada who hasn't been loyal or involved or tied to one party or another? Because it seems like everybody that gets brought out of the woodwork for any of these things 
two days later we hear, oh, by the way, they worked for so-and-so or they are friends with so-and-so. Is it possible to find neutral people still for this who are expert enough to handle it? Yeah, there's tens of thousands of lawyers across the country who know something about investigating and what evidence is and what evidence is not because they're trained in that. Uh, And then there are people who are uh, trained in national security and uh, they know something about it too because um, evidence has to be presented in issues of national security. And and so there's lots of people who can do this. and retired judges. And, you know, that's why I, I wouldn't be surprised if the opposition parties recommend uh, a three-person commission so that there will be some balance. And if someone says, oh, well, that person has some tie 20 years ago, that there will be another person on the commission that would balance them off. Um, and so, uh, yeah, th- this is the grand illusion of Ottawa and all the provincial capitals that, hey, there's only this group of insiders that can look at us and judge us. No, there's there's tens of thousands of outsiders who have never been let in because they are impartial and they will do a good job. And what ruling parties do and even opposition parties is they want insiders who they can trust will protect them. And on ethics and transparency and spending, uh, elections even, the ruling party gets to choose across the country and everywhere except BC, um, where all parties choose these watchdogs. The ruling party chooses them and they often choose insider lapdogs who will protect them as opposed to uh, upholding the law and following the evidence and, and finding people in violation when uh, the evidence shows they are in violation. So uh, lo- lots of other people uh, would apply. I think if if um, the opposition party said we're going to set up an application process because we want to look outside the tent and the government, lots of people would apply for these positions of watchdogs too, if they were more merit-based appointment processes. And that's what has to change. All of the watchdogs uh, who judge wrongdoing in politics are cl- currently chosen through secretive partisan processes and for inquiry commissioners and all these watchdogs, we need an appointment process that is what the Trudeau Liberals promised but didn't follow through on that's actually merit-based, that actually appoints the most qualified person as opposed to the person who's most qualified from the Liberal uh, Prime Minister's office and Cabinet's view. That is, uh, we got to run. That is Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch. Duff, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That is our show. That's all the time we've got. We'll be back tomorrow at 3 o'clock. Uh, thank you to Tom. Thank you to uh, Will. And uh, thank you to all of you for listening. Thank you to our guests. As I say, back at 3 o'clock tomorrow. We'll talk to you soon. Have a great night. Bye.